Good morning again, it's me. Um, last week, I was real vulnerable with you all about my encounter with the bathroom scales and my wife's pre-bedtime sermon about wanting to versus needing to in response to my comment about needing to lose some weight and get back into shape. And so, as an update, this week, I got back into the pool for the first time in years. Public accountability. You may not know this about me, but I used to be a pretty decent swimmer back in the day. I was part of the school team all through high school. I used to train three or four times a week, sometimes at 6 a.m. Uh, I was a backstroke specialist. That was my jam. Now, my preferred method of staying in shape, at least until recently, was playing soccer. I, I don't like to run unless I'm running in a confined area with a ball at my feet or in my hands and I'm trying to get into a goal or across a line. But the pandemic shut down all of the rec leagues almost a year ago now, and I'm finally ready to admit that playing soccer once a week for an hour is actually not enough to keep a person in shape. So this week, I went for a swim at the William Rumsey Pool down at Eastern Market. It's a public pool. You can go for free. You just have to hop onto the DPR website when they release new times and book your lane. I say that as if I've done it. I haven't. I haven't. My wife, Carolyn, has been going swimming, swimming recently, and she's been booking lanes for herself, and I've gotten to benefit from her enterprise. Come Thursday morning, it had been, I mean, Thursday evening, it had been a long week, uh, at the end of a long month, and I hadn't been sleeping great, and I was tired, which is to say, I was about to beg off and make some excuse about needing to rest. But my wife persuaded me to go. It'll be good for your stress, she said. It'll be good to get out of the house. You were just talking about getting back in shape, etc., etc. So I went, and let me tell you, it was hard. It was a reality check as to how much fitness I had lost. When I was a teenager, as part of our training, we would occasionally swim two kilometers or, or 2,000 meters in one go to work on our endurance. The other night, I managed 900 meters with a lot of breaks. And I was so sore afterwards. My neck, my shoulders, my hips, my arms, that, that it, so, so sore that it was actually a little hard to sleep well that night. So much so that when my alarm went off the next morning, at Friday, on Friday morning, I snoozed it, which would normally be fine, as Fridays are usually my day off. Except I was slated to lead the Lenten morning prayer session. So I was a few minutes late to that. I did make it. Apologies, though, to those folks who were on time, and thanks to those who persisted in patience. But swimming, for me, on Thursday night, it was a start. And in the words of the prophet Zechariah, do not despise these small beginnings. Now, he was talking about something completely unrelated to my fitness regimen, but I think the principle holds true regardless. Anyway, as I was reflecting on my experience this week and preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of two things. First, I was reminded of a quote by the monk Thomas Merton, who said, In the spiritual life, there are no tricks and no shortcuts. I think that's true of the physical life, too. But anyway, Merton continued, One cannot begin to face the real difficulties of the life of prayer and meditation unless one is first perfectly content to be a beginner and really experience himself or herself as one who knows little or nothing and has a desperate need to learn the bare rudiments. Those who think they know from the beginning will never, in fact, come to know anything. We do not want to be beginners in prayer, but let us be convinced of the fact that we will never be anything else but beginners all our life. 
Let that be an encouraging word to all of us as we continue in our series entitled Prayer, Learning to Pray Like Jesus. Whether we feel completely inadequate in our prayers or we feel like we have a good rhythm and practice of prayer, we will never be anything but beginners. With the attitude of seeking to learn and grow and be with a need for God that will always be just beyond what we can express. The second thing that came to mind as I thought about my week was this. It matters who you have in your corner in your time of need. Now, in just one story, one less consequential incident, there have been greater times of need, of course. My wife demonstrated her own initiative and effort and inclusiveness to loop me in, the discernment to know what I needed even when I was tempted to back out, the courage to name it, and the compassion and care to look out for me and look after me. It matters who you have in your corner in your time of need, which is what we're looking at today. So we step into the text of the Lord's Prayer. We're starting with the who of prayer. Right at the beginning, our Father in heaven. Who are we talking to? Who are we listening to? Who are we centering on, meditating on? Who are we submitting our requests to? Who are we praying to when we as Christians follow the lead of Jesus and pray this Lord's Prayer? Who is our Father in heaven? Because how we talk to someone, how we approach somebody, how we request something from someone, it differs depending on who that person is, right? If I don't know you as well, I'm less likely to, for instance, ask you for a favor or vice versa. We, we haven't built up the trust. We haven't developed the relationship on which that request can stand. Whereas with my family or my close friends, with many of you, I can make a request with confidence knowing that you know me and you trust me and, and knowing that you'll come through. And so it's important to know what relationship we have with the one to whom we pray. And fortunately, we have this prayer that Jesus taught us to help us. The Lord's Prayer establishes before anything else in the prayer the relationship. It begins with being about God before it's about us. It starts with recognizing who God is. Our Father in heaven is how Jesus begins this prayer. And so this morning, we're going to look briefly at each part. First, Father. In the New Testament Greek and the Aramaic that Jesus would have spoken, the word Father, pater in Greek or Abba in Aramaic, would be the first word of the sentence. I want to acknowledge that the word Father can be a loaded word, especially when applied to God. There are some for whom this word is fraught with pain and hurt and loss, whether because of the failings or absence of your own earthly father or, or grieving a recent passing or perhaps because of the excesses of, of patriarchy, which is that social system where men have overwhelmingly held the power and privilege and most likely is, is the only context most of us have ever experienced. Now let me be clear. When we say God is Father, we're using a metaphor. There are metaphors in Scripture for God that are feminine. We are born of God in 1 John 3, or, or God as a mother in Psalm 131, or God as Lady Wisdom in in Proverbs 8, others that are neutral. God is a rock or a shield. But the majority are masculine, to which one theologian comments, it is no surprise that in a patriarchal society that is the context of the writings in Scripture, masculine images and pronouns predominate. In the Catholic Catechism, which has been used to instruct Christians for hundreds of years, it says God transcends the human distinction between the sexes. God is neither man nor woman. God is God. 
God also transcends human fatherhood and motherhood, although He is their origin and standard. God is not male or female. Though we might use masculine or feminine metaphors for God. There are different ways to acknowledge this. For instance, I try to use he-him pronouns only when referring to Jesus or the Father, which is a masculine pronoun. For God in general or the Spirit, I'll just say God or the Spirit to remind myself, to remind myself at the very least, that I'm not referring to a male deity. Now, I know that many of you may not have these hang-ups or inclinations, but this is just one way I'm trying to break apart the smaller understanding of God that I was conditioned into. I also don't have a problem talking about God as mother, where we're using the term to refer to a heavenly parent or the originator of life. But I'm not ready to jettison the metaphor of God as father, despite the baggage that may have accumulated, just as I'm not ready to jettison other metaphors for God in Scripture. I think instead that there are at least a few things we can learn from what it meant for God to be Father in the days when the Bible was written, in the time when Jesus was alive, that might actually have something to tell us about who we pray to, that may even bring new life to our prayers. There are four things, intimacy, respect, liberation, and mission. Intimacy, respect, liberation, and mission. The word Abba which Jesus used, was more intimate than acceptable. It was more intimate than acceptable. You may have heard some equate this with the term daddy, but unsurprisingly, our language is insufficient for talking about God. There really isn't a word in English that adequately captures the fullness of the word Abba, just as the word Abba can't fully can't capture the fullness, adequately capture the fullness of God. Still, the God of Israel was was usually referred to by more awesome-sounding titles. King of heaven, almighty God, God of the angel armies. For Jesus to refer to the creator of the heavens and the earth in such a scandalously familiar way, Abba, permitted and made possible a new kind of access for Jesus' disciples. Jesus is saying to us that we too have have access. We have the opportunity to have a deep, intimate, close relationship with the God of the universe. In several countries in the Middle East today, one historian writes, Abba is still the first word that a young child learns. There's something basic and elementary and instinctive about that word Abba, Father. But Abba was not just about intimacy. It was also about respect. It wasn't just the daddy who grants our every wish. In family circles where the term Abba was used, what was central to the relationship between the father and child was obedience and respect. There is a way in which that word Abba holds within it the greatness of God as well as the closeness of God. This is also part of the dynamic we are invited into. We don't just bring our requests and our problems to God. We also allow God to change us, to challenge us, and we align our lives accordingly with respect and in obedience. In her book, Listening for God, which I just finished last month, minister and scholar Renita Weems recounts one occasion where she came to realize, she says, I wanted God to speak to me, but I didn't want God to confront me. I wanted God to speak to me, but I didn't want God to confront me. Now, I'm sure we've all been in that same place. But if we are only looking for closeness without challenge, For God to fulfill our requests without us listening to His, we are treating Him as a comfort blanket that grants wishes. We're not meeting Him as a person in relationship to be respected and honored. 
Third, God's fatherhood speaks of liberation. The first time God is referred to as father in the Bible is in the Old Testament book of Exodus, when Moses confronts the Pharaoh of Egypt, and he passes on the message he has received from Yahweh. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you to let him go. For the people of Israel, then, the concept of God as father, it had roots that went back to breaking chains, to revolution, to liberation, to their formation as their own nation. Moreover, in patriarchal cultures, your social standing was determined by your father's social standing. So those who had more noble fathers had a higher place in society. And yet, when God names us his children, we're all on the same level. No matter what might divide us or segregate us or stratify us, all of us are not only made in the image of God, as we heard so beautifully, uh, seen, saw so beautifully earlier, but children of God. When, when Jesus called God Father, he was tapping into all of that cultural knowledge. He was inviting his listeners to dream with him and hope with him and trust with him in the chain-breaking, liberating God. And for fatherhood, in Jesus' day, spoke of mission. In the culture of the day, sons were apprenticed to their fathers. If your father was a carpenter, as Jesus' father Joseph was, you too would be a carpenter. You would learn your trade by watching your father at work, by practicing alongside him, and then maybe you would take over the business. We know that for the first 30 years of his life, Jesus did just that. He learned how to be a carpenter. But Joseph wasn't Jesus' only father. In the Gospel of John, over and over again, Jesus talks about how he is doing only what he sees his father doing. He is about his father's work. He is doing what his father sent him to do. And he wasn't talking about making chairs. He was talking about saving lives from sin. He was talking about rescuing souls trapped in bondage and captivity. He was talking about healing the sick and casting out demons, about challenging systems of injustice and their agents. He was talking about preaching and embodying the good news of new life wherever he went to whomever would listen. That was the mission of God the Father. It was, therefore, the mission of God the Son. This is what we, too, sign on for when we pray to God as Father. As Matthew preached a couple weeks ago, we are on mission with God. We are about the same work as Jesus was. We are sent by the Father, empowered by the Spirit, likewise preaching and embodying the good news of new life wherever we go to whomever might listen. Abba, Father. This is how Jesus begins his prayer. This is where our prayer and all prayers have to start in understanding the relationship you have with the person you're talking to, the person you're listening to, the person you're engaging with. You don't have to pray every prayer to God the Father, but with God as Father, what we pray is into a relationship of intimacy and respect, of liberation and mission. Let me name the other components of this opening phrase. These will take a little less time. We don't just pray to the Father. We don't just pray to my Father. We pray to our Father. This is such an important distinction for those of us who live in the hyper-individualistic culture of the United States. Praying to our Father means that we are in this together. Who is we? Who is the we? All of us. All of us who might be praying this prayer. This is not a private prayer. God is not your or my private God. Even in naming the one whom we address, 
We are drawn out of ourselves. We are reminded of others. We are reminded that we are part of one another, that we are tied together in a single garment of destiny, in the words of Martin Luther King. In the words of Pope Francis, I'm not an only child. None of us is. And if I cannot be a brother, it will be hard for me to truly be a son of this father because he is a father of all, my father and that of my brothers and sisters. If I'm not at peace with my brothers and sisters, I cannot say father to him. We are praying to, a, to the God who commanded God's chosen people to love their neighbors as they loved themselves and to love God with all of who they were. And Jesus, who was God in human form, he tied those two commandments together in saying they were like one another, that you demonstrate your love for God in the ways you love your neighbor. Prayer to our Father invites us to get out of ourselves for a moment, to recognize and realize we are all in this together, and to lift up others before God, to cover others in prayer, to intercede on their behalf especially those in need, it's those who are vulnerable or marginalized, those who have had their divine image beaten down or tarnished, those for whom we see God's particular concern throughout Scripture. Praying to our Father is an invitation to solidarity. Praying to our Father. It is also yet another reminder of the intimacy and access we are being given because we pray this with Jesus. With Jesus, we pray to our Father. We're not just reminded that we stand on the same level ground as everyone else. We are invited into the same relationship with God, the same closeness, the same oneness as Jesus had and has had and still has since before time existed. We're invited to discover life to the full and purpose and vitality by being connected to the very source of all life, to the great and glorious God, to our Father in heaven. This is the last part of the opening phrase. Our Father in heaven. There's a way of understanding this as making the distinction that God is not an earthly father or mother. God will not disappoint us in the ways earthly parents are bound to. God loves us more deeply and truly than any earthly parent could. This divine parent knows our every need, knows every thought we think, every word we say before it is even on our tongue, and every deed that is done in secret. But it's more than that, too. This is what theologian Wesley Hill writes. Heaven as the Bible describes it, is not a far-off place in some distant galaxy. It's not a place at all in the sense we usually use that term, which makes it hard to talk about for people who cannot imagine existing without taking up space. Rather, heaven is a word that allows us to speak about God's nearness and availability without pinning him down to a specific geographical address. Because God's life is not bodily, he is not limited by the categories of time and space that mark our human existence. Or to explain it another way, the word used in the Lord's Prayer for heaven is the plural of the Greek word uranos, from which we get the planet named Uranus. And so the literal translation is, our Father, the one in the heavens. In the New Testament, that term is used in a number of different ways. It's used for the atmosphere, it's used for the sky, and it is even used for the air we breathe. I will say often as a reminder to myself as much as to you, that God is nearer to you than the air you are breathing right now. 
God is closer to us than the oxygen flowing in through our noses and into our lungs. God isn't far off. God isn't uninterested. God is near. God is here. When we pray to our Father in heaven, we are communing with and calling on, as Matthew defined prayer last week, the holy, mysterious, transcendent God who created all of the stars in the sky and all of the planets that surround them and all of the life and beauty on this one. And we are connecting with this God in a relationship of intimacy, of closeness, and of respect, of honor. And we are joined in with the work of God's liberation and mission. Now, some of the more observant among you might be wondering why the scripture reading was from Genesis 3, and I have yet to touch on it in my sermon thus far. Well, here we are. The small group prayer practice we engaged in last week was of intercessory prayer. What many of us think of when we think of prayer, it's praying for the needs of others. Uh, this week, I want to integrate a couple of prayer practices for us to try. Breath prayer and imaginative prayer. And I'd like to try that now together uh, too, with, with, with you all. And so let me invite you, as you're able, to sit up. If you've been slouching or laying back, to invite you to sit up and find a comfortable posture. Maybe put your, maybe put your feet flat on the floor. Straighten your back a little bit. And I want you to invite you. You can, you can have your eyes open or closed as we go into this. But let's begin by taking some deep breaths in and breathe out. And again. Feel the air flowing into yourself. Bringing oxygen to your lungs, life to your body. And as you do this, picture, what does it mean that God is closer to you than even the air you are breathing right now? I want to invite you to put your hands over your face, as you might do if you were feeling shame or shock. See the picture of, that we see in Genesis 3 where the man and the woman have, have sinned, they have eaten of the fruit, and they are ashamed. They are hiding from God. They're hiding. As you put your hands over your face, I want you to think about the last time you felt shame or ashamed. God didn't leave the man and the woman in their shame. That last verse of scripture of the scripture reading, he comes looking for them. He says, where are you? It's not angry. It's the plea of relationship. And so even as you have your hands covering your face, even as you're remembering that last time that you felt shame, breathe in deep. God is with you. God is still searching for you. God is still here for you. 
Where are you? And now maybe bunch up your fists tight. Clench your fists tight. And think of the last time you were angry. The last time you were upset. And as you do so, breathe in deep. In this too, God is with you. In this too, God is seeking you. Searching for you. I want you to to maybe (laughs) grab onto your head or grab onto your hair if you... uh, Whatever, whatever gesture you would make if you were frustrated. And again, breathe in deep. As you remember the last time you were frustrated, the last time you were frustrated at yourself or at somebody else. Remember that God is with you as you breathe in deep. Remember that God is searching for you, that you don't need to hide. Now I want to invite you to put your, your arms across, across your chest. Just a gesture of protection, gesture of fear, gesture of self-preservation. I want you to remember the last time you were afraid. The last time you needed some saving. And as you do so, breathe in deep. Remember that God is closer to you than the air that you're breathing. Now I want you to lift your arm, spread your arms out. Or drop them by your sides. Whatever posture speaks to a freedom and a liberation and an openness. Remember the last time you felt that way. Or feel the longing that you might have to feel that way. And as you do so, breathe in deep. Remember that the God of liberation is close to you. Working in you, working around you, working in in all of us and working around us. Our Father. you to come back into your into this space into this place you can open your eyes or come out of that prayer we breathe all the time and so maybe this week or as we breathe as we remember our breathing as we become intentional about and aware about our breathing we might Use that as a way of reminding ourselves of God's presence with us.